my name is Augustine Colebrook. I'm the principal at the Bushery Wisdom Collective. My focus is on big picture political movements that are happening within the profession, some of the controversial questions, and centering voices that are not being regularly heard. I'm Layla Wyatt. I am a traveling student midwife, learning midwifery from cultures and a lineage of midwifery throughout the United States. I'm here to center the voices of students to hear their calling, their pathway, why they chose midwifery, and even share a bunch of birth stories along the way. Greetings. I'm Jamara Amani. I am a midwife, a mom, and a social justice activist. I am here to challenge white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and anything that keeps people from being their best and living their best selves as we have the human right to do. And I am looking forward to sharing stories of birth justice on this podcast. Hi there, Delmar Bellin. I am non-binary, queer, transgender, Latinx, midwife, and my focus is on increasing access and equity in midwifery care and midwifery education. Hello, my name is Angie Love. I am a community nurse midwife in Vero Beach, Florida at the practice of Midwife Love. I also do telehealth midwifery through Midwife RX. I'm a mama and I am committed to maintaining birth choices for all people and educating a future generation of midwives because we will not die out. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. I am Angie Love, nurse midwife. And here on the line with me, I have Angie Nixon, another nurse midwife. Welcome, Angie. Thank you, Angie. Yay. <laughs> Angie and Angie today coming at you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I am a nurse midwife, nurse practitioner practicing in Vero Beach, Florida, and also doing telehealth in Utah. My Vero Beach practice is called Midwife Love. It includes prenatal care, home birth, postpartum care, gynecology for all, and primary care. And the telehealth practice is called Midwife RX, includes provision of midwifery wisdom and prescriptions in Florida, Georgia, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and West Virginia. So Angie, you want to tell us a little bit about your practice currently? Yes, um, my, my practice is known as Scenic Drive Midwives. Um, I live on Scenic Drive and also there are many scenic drives in the course of our rounding and attending births. Um, we're a home birth only practice, so we focus exclusively on home birth at this time, although I do have a couple of part-time gigs that I do sometimes help out at a local birth center as a birth assistant there, and occasionally I'll do some locum tenens, but my practice is similar to yours, Angie, it sounds like, um, primarily um, women's health, pelvic health, reproductive health, and um, a little bit of primary care, but primarily home birth, that's kind of our main focus. And I just added another CNM to the practice, Beth Ross. Um, she started in June of this year. It's August now, or I guess September now. And so we're, she has a lot of hospital experience and she's just tapping her toe into a new practice setting. So she's, it's, it's 
been so much fun for me to watch her go through the process of discovery of what it feels like to her to what she calls become a real midwife. And that I, I say that guardedly because I don't want ever to disparage midwives who are not working in home birth practices because that takes courage and dedication and an entirely different magnitude and tolerance of difficulties that <laughs> exist in institutional care. But that has been just really a lot of fun watching her rediscover her passions and um, understand what autonomy and practice looks like. And our, we don't have a boss. It's like the clients are kind of our boss rather than having a hierarchical um, type of practice that has a lot of different layers of <laughs> bureaucracy or leadership or administration and the clinical piece. So we focus on, we have several students in our practice now, and that was mainly her goal in getting um, a few home births starting off over the first couple of months is so that she could become a preceptor for precepting CPMs. So she's also on a really steep learning curve for understanding CPMs. And that's been really enjoyable for us too, because it's always been an important part of my practice to consider um, collaborative midwifery models with differently credentialed midwives and other healthcare professionals. Yes, I love it. I love it. Uh, what school do your students go to? Um, many of them, right now, all of them are part of the PEP process, the independent study pathway to the NARM um, board certification. And I do have several colleagues that are faculty with the Midwives College of Utah and other um, MEEC accredited and I don't know if there are any non-MEEC accredited school programs that, but we're, we're open for students, a variety of different backgrounds. So it's kind of very individual what people are looking for, but in an area like ours, a rural area with very few practicing home birth midwives, um, it's very well suited to the PEP model. And we feel like people get a lot of good experience in, in our practice. We need a little bit higher volume for it to be very viable for uh, students on a regular basis. But my number one student just finished her last birth three days ago for her certification. So she's hoping to be certified within the next few months. Oh, good news. Yeah, educating students is definitely one of my passions as well. I feel like I'm educating the future of, of midwifery and keeping our tradition alive. I was at a birth a week and a half ago. It was um, the fourth birth in this family. And I, I was attending all four. So it was a very special birth for me. Mm -hmm. And to make it even more special, the nine-year-old daughter of this family gave me a gift of a doll she had made herself. She had sewed it by hand. It was very cute. It looked like a midwife. It had a little midwife bag and she had worked on it all by herself. She said, no help from anybody. And she gave me this doll that she had worked so hard on. And also during that birth, her mom was, I was doing something to her mom, I think checking her fundus, you know, after the baby. And she's like, what's going on? And her mom said, Miss Angie's just making sure I, I'm okay. That's what midwives do is they check and make sure we're okay. And uh, the daughter says, is Miss Angie going to be around when I have babies? 
And I don't, I don't know if I will be, she's nine. Um, But that's why I educate students because I want someone who has seen how beautiful birth can be and how wonderful it can be. I want someone to have midwives around for them. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. It is starting that early Mm -hmm. that at nine years old, starting to develop an appreciation for the process and what you offered in her family to the continuity of their birth experiences. And that's lifelong. That's storytelling. Birth is so rich. (laughs) I think that's the best present I ever got. It was. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, Vero Beach here in Florida is a, uh, a smaller town. Um, it is occupied land. Formerly the IES indigenous people lived here. I am a cis white woman and my pronoun are she and hers. I am a mother of two daughters who are currently seven and 10. Um, so that's some of my background. If you want to share any, Angie. Sure. Um, I'm also a cis white woman. Um, I'm entering my crone stage of life, um, which, well, I'm not sure if it, if that model fits. I'm not a mother. I have not, um, ever had a pregnancy or birth myself personally, but I have one goddaughter who I was, with from her moment of birth and two nieces and one nephew. So I have a strong connection to a few children in my life that are really personally connected, but being a a biological mother was not in the cards for me. So that's kind of, I think, unusual for midwives, but also I recognized early on that that was a valuable quality for um, being available to the work that we do, which is, it can be a very large um, burden for a, a person with family and any responsibilities at home. So it's tricky because we, in the, in an, as an employer, um, of midwives and of students and, and other support staff, it's really hard to work around family demands, especially when I don't have them myself. So I don't have that personal understanding of all the things it takes to juggle. I know what it. I know it's an amazing responsibility, but I haven't haven't had to personally do that. And getting myself places, <laughs> I can't imagine if I had one or two or three or more children to have to also be responsible for in life. So. <laughs> Um, I live in West Virginia. I've lived here for, let's see, since 1999. And I came here straight out of school. I was looking for a new place to go that I hadn't been before. And so I ended up in West Virginia for a position in a practice that was 90% hospital and 10% birth center, freestanding birth center. And that's where I wanted to learn midwifery in a group of seasoned midwives. So I had a few possibilities around the country, but this was, this was the best deal financially too. It's like the cost of living here is very low. And as of the 2020 census, West Virginia is entirely a rural state. Now, even the cities are considered rural, um, but it it's sort of, um, if, if anyone's familiar with the move, the documentary, The Business of Being Born, I really um, 
understood a lot of the midwife's experiences driving around in busy Manhattan streets and thinking this is exactly like that here in West Virginia except instead of downtown Manhattan this is rural Appalachia (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah home birth looks similar inside the home wherever you're at there's just different maybe geographical challenges I can't imagine being in West Virginia during the snow you know but I'm sure for you, it might be difficult to imagine the hurricane instructions I'm passing out when we got a big one coming and how we're going to prepare and what you need to have on hand in case 911 is not coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So where'd you go to school at, Angie? I went to undergraduate school in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota at McAllister College. And then I went to grad school at um, Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, okay. Ohio. Nice. I think I've told you before, but I was born in West Virginia. Oh my gosh. That's a small world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My uh, big, huge families uh, in Ohio. And I think it was during the recession of 77. That's when I was born. So there was some kind of recession going on that um, work was hard to come by in Columbus. And so they went back to their ancestors where they were from in West Virginia. And my dad got a coal mining job. Uh, My grandpa was a coal miner and my great grandpa did some coal mining. So that's where I was born, Charleston, West Virginia. Oh my goodness. That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't live there very long. I was there six months and then we moved back to Ohio. So, but I, whenever I drive through there, I love it. It's such a beautiful state. You have some roots here. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Neat. Yeah. So you're out of school. Did your school provide any, um, out of hospital experience, clinical experience? No, we had, um, we had difficulty finding preceptors at all. And so luckily that wasn't our responsibility as students, as I sometimes find that it is now for students. Um, But I did actively seek placements in home or birth center practices, but that just wasn't available at that time. So I worked with um, a midwife who was from the military. Um, She was my primary preceptor at the Cleveland Clinic. So I had um, a lot of good experiences in level one and level three hospitals, but um, no home or birth center experience. So that's why I was very eager to begin my career in a practice where I could still be a new grad and, you know, the expectations of somebody who is, who is still a beginning midwife. Um, so that I could kind of, it's not like it was prolonging my student years, but in some ways it felt like I had that, a little bit of freedom to, to be green. And, um, but I also was happy to immerse myself in my work and get a lot of experience as fast as I could. So I felt like it took me about three years to feel like I was at full competence with a lot of mentoring in that time. And I um, felt like that was about the average type of progression for someone who didn't come out of a program with um, a past history of um, labor and delivery nursing or any nursing experience. My nursing was only part of my education. So I started with no nursing. The first two years of my program were basically like an accelerated BSN program. We didn't get a bachelor's degree, but we all had bachelor's degrees before we started. It was a doctoral program. I didn't finish the doctorate. I 
for a number of reasons, but mainly it wasn't required for entry to practice. But I did get the doctoral education and it made me a very um, good consumer of clinical research. And I saw myself wanting to do clinical research and practice. It was a it was the program was a precursor to what today's DMP is. Um, so it was an innovative program at the time, and I really liked the students that were in my cohort because we all sort of had similar ambitions, and that that felt like a really helpful professional orientation to the work of advanced practice nurses. Yes, yes. So when you started working and you saw your first birth in the birth center, what was that like? Oh my gosh, I was so excited. I was being mentored by um, a male midwife and that's also unusual in in practice. I think the demographics of men in midwifery are maybe one to 5%, but a small number. Um, but I really appreciated having um, him as a mentor and also other seasoned midwives in the practice, but it was a little different. And I noticed that he was really effective at helping families see themselves giving birth at the birth center. And I don't, I still don't know what that special magic was that he was able to do, whether it was inspirational or if he was, um, I, I, he, I always describe him as a really good midwife too. And so I saw him be very effective in that way of helping people match their goals with their options in terms of their care. And I, what I discovered over the five years that I worked in that practice was that I really liked working with families whose goals were to have uninterventive births and um, that they wanted to be very self-sufficient in their birthing. And that was inspiring to me. I really loved working the, with the families and going from birth center to home birth, it was sort of that much more autonomy in the family to take responsibility for their own healthcare decisions and um, how they wanted their experiences to go. So that yeah. was the draw for me. Yes, yes. I remember that day too, of the, the day I first saw out of hospital birth and it was, wow, wow, this is how birth should be, you know? And I'm not saying that's for everyone, but for me, I was just like, this is birth. This is real untouched, unmanaged birth, you know? And it yep. was, it, that day changed me, changed. It was definitely what I was, what I had been looking for, for a while. So this podcast is going to be based on community midwifery. So midwives that are out there working in homes, working in birth centers. Um, and I feel like, you know, we're going to be talking to a lot of people, maybe listening across the country, other nurse midwives who have considered coming out of the hospital and have considered, you know, hopping into a home birth practice or starting their own. So I'm excited to talk to you and other nurse midwives about their journeys and how they made it work you know? Yeah. Yeah. I currently have a male midwife student. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So he's just, <laughs> he's just beginning, but he's had a couple home births himself with his family and he started being a doula. So he's got a, Oh, you know, I think he has a West Virginia connection. I think I know who you're talking about. Yes, he does. <laughs> he knows you. Yes. 
we are connected that way as well. <laughs> it is a small uh, world. It is a small world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so happy that he's getting experience with you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Um, so yeah, so tell me a little bit about your journey and the different things you've done. Cause I know you've been a midwife a while now. I have been a midwife for a while now. It really is a while. <laughs> Checking those boxes of your years in practice. And I keep going up categories now. I'm almost to the top one, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> so I started doing home birth in 2003. And um, I still had student loans to pay off. And Um, So my first goals in practice were financial goals to be able to have a home birth practice and not have to put my loans in deferment (laughs) to do it. So I did save up a little bit uh, before I started. And um, so I had a little bit of a cushion to take that leap. And in my first year, I started in August, really kind of putting my full focus and developing a new practice. And I had my first birth in December. And my second year, I think I had 13 births. And the third year, I think 17 births. So I gradually worked up to about 20, 25 to 30 births in a year. And that was my pretty much my sweet spot until I realized that is also the path for burnout for me. So I started looking for a second midwife in 2010 because I was planning to do some traveling in 2011 for several months. Um, I had joined the board of an international midwifery organization and um, I got very inspired to look into global midwifery. And so my first international midwifery conference was an ICM conference in Durban, South Africa. And so I, I called it a sabbatical. It was my seventh year in practice. I wanted to like really take some serious, severe, serious time off, um, which ended up being about three months to travel while I was in Africa. And the year before I had met um, the vice president of Malawi on a plane. And so she invited me to come visit her in Malawi. So I made a few little stops on my travels around. And I also in 2008 became very interested in anti-racism work. And so I've been on that journey for a little over a decade now. That was inspired by my best friend having uh, adopted a one biracial child and one black child into a white family. And then they had a um, biological child of their own. So we live in West Virginia and we don't have a lot of racial diversity in our area. So that was a, it was a big project that we all took on and some taking on a project that doesn't exactly fit how it was, but that's what inspired me to become more knowledgeable about it and my she would my friend would relate to me experiences of being a parent of a foster child and then an adopted child um, of a different race and that she noticed that people of every race would treat her in a certain way and she started picking up on that and was she was not giving it a lot of thought but I was analyzing it a lot and starting to realize oh okay there's such a thing as the well-meaning white woman and I I really didn't have very deep of an understanding of those concepts then Um, but it really 
got me very interested and I realized I have another passion that is almost as strong as midwifery in understanding racial justice. And I make mistakes all the time. I like talking to white people about racism. Um, I feel like I have a long way to go on that journey too, but I've been incorporating it into my practice ever since. And that's branched into a lot of other areas of reproductive justice that, um, inspire me a lot because I've always had an interest in wellness across all of those spectrum of care. Um, and when I was in college, I was very interested in contraception and abortion rights. And when I became of childbearing age, um, I was very interested in motherhood and parenthood. And um, now I'm more interested in perimenopause and menopause than I was before. I'm not that interested in it yet, but <laughs> I know that midwives sometimes are classified as midwives who love um, women, who love birth, who love babies, or who love pregnancy. And I kind of feel like I'm the kind of midwife who gravitates towards loving the process that people go through to become pregnant and it's such and to give birth and it's such a um it's such a rite of passage and there's so many parts of developing that a different identity and there are so many windows of opportunity for making lasting changes or decisions that determine other life opportunities even and so I was I was, I'm still really gravitate towards the birthing person and their role in that process, <clears throat> but I get a lot of other things out of it too. So, yes, I feel you. I feel you. I just finished this book, um, called reclaiming childbirth as a rite of passage. Have you heard of it? Oh, no, but I'm putting it on my list. Yeah. It's by Rachel Reed. Um, I heard about it in this magazine that I get called radical midwifery. And I guess I'm one of those midwives. Uh, <laughs> I've become one of those. I wanted an article that was in there, but to get the article, you had to like get a subscription. So that guy was like, I'm guessing I'm becoming a radical midwife, but it is based in the UK and it's pretty interesting little, little magazine. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I, maybe we'll do a little segment right now called like, what are you reading? Cause I'm a voracious reader. I love to read. I devour literature of all types. So I don't know. Do you like to read? What do you like to read? What have you read recently? I love to read, but I haven't done as much reading as I like to in the last bit. I have a, a, a wish list online that I want to order. And it's like, there's about 20 things on it right now. I need to push the button and get it here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Partly for my lending library, because I've noticed that it's not that up to date. There are a lot of classics, but not a lot of new material. So I'm like, okay, what are people reading now? I want to know those things too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I tend to read at work. I have the ACNM journal. I also have uh, the green ACOG journal. Mm -hmm. And so on my lunch, I'll flip through those and see what's, you know, what's interesting research coming out. And then I have, you know, if I'm really sick of that, I might pull out that radical midwifery and read some of that. Um, <laughs> at home, I like a lot of sci-fi or different things, but I'm reading one right now. I thought I'd bring it in because it's written by an Angela. 
Yay! <laughs> Another. <laughs> we got three Angie's here on the podcast. Um, this one is by Angela Duckworth, and it is called Grit: The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And so, um, I think that grit is something that women discover during their births is really how much grit they have, how much power they have, how much strength they have. That could be from, you know, making it through birth, you know, uh, that could be making difficult choices, you know, on their labor journey, they didn't expect to have to make, but being vulnerable and making hard choices because they love their children, you know, so there's all different types of grit, but I wanted to just share a quote here about mega successful people and world-class experts. So maybe that's the level you were looking for midwifery, world-class expert midwives. Okay. I love it. About how to get there. And they say, it is a persistent desire to do better. It is the opposite of being complacent, but it's a positive state of mind, not a negative one. It's not looking backward with dissatisfaction. It's looking forward and wanting to grow. And I feel that that is something that I definitely always love learning. I hate being stagnant. I hate feeling like, oh, I've got all this figured out. You know, I like what's new, what's upcoming, what's something else I can learn. I like classes and CEUs. I don't feel motivated to go get my PhD or anything, but I love <laughs> learning. I just love it. So, yeah. Yeah, I definitely share that um, feeling of pursuing a greater understanding of things. And, and I think that was part of it for me when in my first experiences with global midwifery of realizing, oh, this we live in a parallel universe, midwives do. And um, I find that a lot of that goes along with our credentials, like the CNMs and CMs, um, we have a number of people that we recognize as our founders of our leaders of our educators of our um, you know who are the rock stars and in direct entry midwifery in the community birth setting with primarily with CPMs but also uncredentialed midwives and traditional midwives indigenous midwives um, there are a different set of leaders and a different set of scholars and a different set of um, thought who are who are creating the trends and um and it's so interesting to see that we have two different groups all together and we don't cross very often our paths don't cross our practices don't cross there are a few of us that I feel like I'm sort of an ambassador because I like both worlds very much and my practice setting is a lot more like a CPM's practice setting but my professional um, identity is a lot more of an advanced practice nurse which was an, a decision that we made in our state in order to work on full practice authority, which took us 10 years, 12 years of, of a lot of work to get our laws changed here. That was another big part of those years of, oh gosh, from, well, when I first started doing home birth, I realized 
the, the way that I am able to practice is based on what the practice laws are for my state. And if I don't like what they are, then I guess I need to change them. And it was really difficult for me to recruit midwives to West Virginia because it wasn't a full practice state and we required a collaborative agreement, a formal agreement with a physician. And that was to a larger and larger extent unattainable. Uh, the collaboration that I had, I really lucked into it. And I was fortunate enough to find a physician who was an obstetrician who um, I found out many years later from his mother that he had, um, his grandmother had been a midwife and he only knew her for the first five years of his life before she died, but he was sort of her favorite. And I, I have ma made all sorts of um, thoughts about how his life was inspired by some of the things that he learned from his grandmother at that young of an age that influenced his career choice and his willingness to be in practice with midwives like me. He was really glad that I had a credential and that was, you know, he saw me as um, somebody that he wanted to support in that way was a very kind of hands-off kind of collaboration. I only called him when, he, when I needed a consultation and I preferentially referred my clients to him for care if they needed medical care, just because that was my payback to him. It was more of a pay it forward. I re referred preferentially as many clients as I could to him, which weren't that many, fortunately. But it set up, you know, I, I knew that there was this dynamic that if we had a disagreement about practice, a management issue um, that he would win because he outranked me. And I didn't like that we had that inequality in our practices, but he didn't ever um, hold that over me professionally, except one time we had a really hard disagreement about something. And he said, are you willing to sacrifice your, our working relationship over this issue? And I said, no, I'm not, <laughs> she'll have the antibiotics. <laughs> And, and I realized this is why we need full practice authority is because that shouldn't be, he shouldn't be responsible for my decisions and I shouldn't be responsible for his. We should have our own independent skills and apply them when needed. And it shouldn't be this dynamic of he's responsible for something that he doesn't need to be responsible for. And I would always chart defensively that, you know, just to protect our relationship, our collaborative relationship. And then um, he had a heart attack. And I realized this, even though this is a solid working relationship, I see no end in sight to it. I can't rely on any one person that my practice hangs in the balance of this person who could get into a car accident or could have another heart attack. Or, you know, I started to realize how fleeting this arrangement was for the long term. And by this time, it had been maybe 10 years that we collaborated with each other. And I was very motivated to release him and myself from those obligations. So, so we decided to in incorporate the LACE model and um, become APRNs in our state. Mid nurse midwives always had separate licensure since 1974 from, um, from the basic nursing license, but we, ended the separate licensure for CNMs and initiated a separate licensure for APRNs. And that, that's what eventually did get passed and was implemented in 2016.
Okay. Well, that's awesome. That's really good news. So I was wondering, did you, have you had any interesting births lately or any birth stories that you want to share from recent times? Oh gosh. I always have lots of, lots of inspiring births. Um, I, let me think about which birth stories I want to tell and I'll make a little mental note while we're, if we can move on to another yeah. quick topic so I can circle back to that. I, I'm so, there are so many things about midwifery and home birth specifically that are so close to confidentiality issues for me. And so it's hard to, um, feel free to talk about births that are in any particular time frame because I don't want that to be a way for clients to, I wanted to brag on them because <laughs> they're all awesome and very often really challenging for me in, in different ways. Usually it's not the midwifery that's challenging, um, but there are a lot of other aspects of working with people that are, are very interesting and challenging to me too. There certainly are, there certainly are. I think um, midwifery has so many components to it. Sometimes I feel like I'm a therapist many times. Sometimes I feel like I'm a social worker. Sometimes I feel um, like I might be a spiritual priest that's listening to a confession. Um, and I did another podcast episode here on resilience and how to avoid burnout. Oh, that's good. Yes. And it just was, we were talking about all of the good qualities that a midwife must have and ones that work against. And one of the things that came up against was like having too much anxiety, you know, um, and you want to have empathy, mm -hmm. but you also have to be able to set boundaries as well. So it's a, it's a learning process of, you know, how to walk the path with families. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. So you were telling me in the story that you had hired the other midwife so you could go and travel and, and do that. How did that work yeah. out? Oh, that worked out well. Um, the person that, um, uh, I ended up bringing in was very young and she had just finished her certification and she, um, she told me she was 20. She'd been homeschooled and she went to midwifery school in a, in a meek program and finished in three years. So she was 20 and she had just finished midwifery school. And she asked if that would be a problem for me. And I was like, gosh, I don't think so, but let me think for a minute. Cause I didn't really, I did have some, um, maybe even prejudices about, um, about homeschooling, which she sort of shattered because she was so fantastic. And um, it took a long time for me to even learn any of her weaknesses because she was, she had very few and she was good at disguising them. And, um, and I remember what I was like at 20 and I was ambitious and I could probably have handled the responsibilities of midwifery at the time, but I, I wasn't anywhere near um, close to honing in on what I wanted to do professionally in my life yet at that 
I mean, not in, even when I was 25, I still don't feel like I had a good grasp on what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I just discovered midwifery at, I think 26 was the first time I knew about midwifery as a modern day career. And, and she had attended the birth of her sibling when she was seven. And that was her inspiration. And we, in our first year, we had a family that had, a, I think she was an eight-year-old daughter at a birth and and I was thinking oh my gosh maybe this is the inspiration that this person is going to have at seven or eight to become a midwife too and you know we we always like to put it out there we need more midwives even to the children yes. <laughs> no, this is a really important career path for um for for everybody and there used to be hundreds and hundreds of midwives all over in West Virginia. I know this just because we did this research for our Sunrise application for our licensing um, policy work. And it, it never occurred to me to think about it that way. I'm like, I would love for there to be two midwives for every community. That's kind of what my goal was. My first goal was to not have to put my loans on deferment. My second goal was to be busy enough to have a student in the practice. And um, so I have worked with students a lot because of my, in my practice, I, um, I don't carry malpractice insurance. And that is a barrier for me working with midwifery students that are pursuing CNM credentials. But I work with nurse practitioner students. I work with PA students. I work with some medical students. Some of it is kind of, um, not officially working with students, but just offering some shadowing opportunities or one-on-one -on -one sort of case study learning and case study style learning. Um, so sometimes nurse midwives have come as new grads and done a little bit of an extended, we called it an internship. Some places call it fellowships to get experience in community birth. And that's been really enjoyable for me to have a new grad who's like kind of, coming out green like I see that as myself that that's the student that I was the opportunity that I wish I would have had at some point um, to just do some immersion and maybe for two weeks or a month and I've even thought about that for experienced midwives who would like to understand community birth better but they don't want to make the full sacrifice of becoming a home birth midwife themselves because it's a very different lifestyle it's a very different case, workload um, the actual clinical hours are kind of semi-retirement level of amount of work, but being on call 24-7 is a, a different kind of schedule to keep and requires a lot of adap adaptation from real, real life. And even in a practice like mine, that my birth caseload is usually two to four births a month. Um, maybe a little bit more now with another midwife, but we really can't increase the volume until there's a third midwife. And this I learned with my second midwife partner <laughs> who was a CPM. And we really did more of that practice analytics of how do, how do you do that workload and how many midwives should be in an FTE of a practice like this. And I, I still, I don't think that there's any one particular formula that always works, but I really want for more hospital-based midwives to have the opportunity to dabble a little bit in birth center and home birth, just because of the different level of autonomy in practice. And, um, and for the opportunities like the new midwife that started with me recently, she has 12 years of hospital-based experience and 
for the first time is coming to appreciation of what birth in its natural habitat looks like. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And um, I have allowed people to shadow with shadow with me who are considering becoming midwives, some nurses from the local L and D's and obviously talking to my clients, seeing who'd be willing to let one of them come to their birth. And there's one here locally that came to a birth with me and it was that one birth. She's like, yep, I need to become a midwife now. You know, like that, just that saw her seeing that she had seen tons of births in the hospital you know, but that home birth was just very inspiring to her. And I think that capturing that in a video in 10 minutes on YouTube or whatever, it's impossible. You know, it's really impossible. Um, I was at a birth this week and this was this woman's third birth. She had had, she had thought about home birth since the beginning, but had been a little too afraid. Her family wasn't for it. So her first birth, she had a C-section. Um, after she was pushed and they didn't give her enough time and whatever. So second birth, she had a V back in the hospital that went well, baby came out wonderfully. And so for this bird, she birth, she finally got around to having her home birth and, um, everything went well. Also, it was probably a little bit longer than she would have liked, of course. Um, <laughs> but not extremely, but anyway, the family is sitting around. And I learned this afterwards that they were just very confused because I wasn't doing that much. <laughs> and they're like, every hour, when's the baby coming? When's the baby coming? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> she seems to be going in that direction. I think it'll be today, you know, but um, we just really don't have that firm answer. And I don't like to commit to an answer because then you're always wrong. Right. Um, <laughs> I never go on record with a prediction. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be happen. It'll happen. But then afterwards they were telling her, I was just so confused because she wasn't doing that much. And I was, you know, doing what was required, listening to baby, checking her vitals, but she was doing her breathing. She had her doula there. Like, you know, there wasn't that much for me to do. It was a lot of sitting around and waiting, but being there as, um, as people would say, kind of, watchful attendance or observing or sitting on your hands or nice midwife mutterings, all of these phrases of what midwives do. Um, but then everyone's happy. The baby came and just shot out like butter when baby finally decided to come. And then the family was like, oh, okay, I guess she's a great midwife. Uh <laughs> <laughs> they were really doubting me the whole time. And then afterwards, oh, okay, I guess you're good. But um, <laughs> it's interesting to hear observations from people who are not used to home birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, had, I had one family who, you know, the baby came out and the baby was crying and breathing and pinking up and she was in the water and she's just looking at the baby. They're doing that kind of magical kind of eye gazing that, that they do. And I'm just sitting back and enjoying it. And everyone's sitting back and I just have this like bliss. I love that moment after birth. That's my favorite part of the birth is maybe that first 15 minutes afterwards. It's magical. Um, and just being there and being able to witness that. And I feel like the oxytocin's in the room. So 
the woman's bonding to her baby. She's also bonding to the other people in the room. I'm bonding to her. We're all bonding. You know, there's just really, really amazing hormones. And then later on, I learned that her mother was just like, I don't understand why the midwife's not doing anything. Shouldn't there be a hat on? Shouldn't there be a stethoscope? You know, all of these things. Shouldn't there be? Shouldn't there be? And no, we were just sitting around and enjoying it. And it was, I don't know. It was, that just brings up like the constant need to do something, you know? Yeah, I do. I recognize that too. And the art of doing nothing I've heard it called too, which is, um, you know, we, we had a handout at one point for why is the midwife sleeping? And it's like, well, just so you know, we have to conserve our resources as well. The hardest part of a birth is at the time of birth, whereas the mother's hardest part of birth is the time, all the time leading up to the birth. And so sometimes we need to shift making sure that we're well rested for that moment. And up until then, we're doing a lot of um, assessments and preventing all the preventable problems, foreseeing the foreseeable problems and being aware of all of those things simultaneously. But when they're not actually presenting as problems, then we can kind of go with the flow too and enjoy the process. And I remember thinking like, oh, I've learned all these things, documenting all this, all these protocols or um, standards for practice and then realizing how little they really impact the birthing process itself. It's really more just description of what the events were, which can be done really simply, but I, I tend to overchart. But it's because I like to make that a really rich experience in the documentation too, and not do storytelling so much, but it's still a form of storytelling of, oh, this is when she was really powerful. And this is when um, she said those words that are like, I've, I'm, I'm at the bottom. I'm, I'm having my hardest moment now. And just letting her know it won't get any worse than this. It won't get any harder than this. This is, this is the maximum. And you might have to do this for a little while yet, but you're, you're coming to the end when you reach that point and the surrender. And, you know, it's a, it's a met birth is such a metaphor for so many other parts of life. And I want for families to remember that when they have other challenges in life that they succeed in, that they've done this. This is, this is one more thing that they can gain strength from in the future that they've done something that everybody knows this is one of the hardest things that your, your body will ever do. <clears throat> and when you do it successfully and without trauma, or if you have trauma and manage that well, and instead of post-traumatic stress, you start to develop more post-traumatic resilience and growth. Um, that's what fascinates me and definitely gets the oxytocin going for me too, is knowing that these are life-changing moments that are happening. I'm witnessing them. I'm appreciating them. And um, hopefully seeing that those are going to stay with families for for their futures too and impart them then to the next generation when your um story about the beginning of the nine-year-old who gave you a doll and you were thinking about this is for the next generation too that that was real like she she understood some of that even at that young age still understanding the importance of of these things that we're doing yes yes and that book that I was reading, the Rite of Passage book, was just talking about how, how women are treated and respected during birth really matters because that's how they're starting their parenthood journey. And 
we can help them trust themselves and be in their power and make the decisions that they want to make with the events that unfold during their birth and trust that they are going to make the decisions that are right for them and their families, you know, be with them on their journey, but keep the power with them, which I think is midwives, community midwives do a pretty good job at. They're going to take that into parenting of, okay, yes, I can console this baby. And yes, I will work through these hurdles that are coming with the breastfeeding, you know, as it's happening. And we've allowed them to be strong, you know, and that's one thing birthing people are is strong. So I think that that rite of passage impacts their immediate parenthood journey, but can impact things along the line as well, their self-esteem, their confidence, you know, instead of just, yeah, leaving them with some trauma, this can be life altering. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to know, is there any other um, tips, advice, or anything you would say to a nurse midwife that's maybe hospital-based and considering going out of, out of hospital and going into community midwifery? Uh, <clears throat> well, I really want to encourage that person who is thinking about, it may be sort of a romantic notion of a different kind of birth. A lot of hospital-based midwives feel that they are um, really effective at creating a home-like environment and home-like conditions when they're in the hospital. So I want to um, validate that that can often be done in, in many institutional settings and the protection that that we bring to the experience and the empowerment that is also really fun. But in a medically complex situation, um, those things may not be at the forefront of the, of the, the birthing people what they're facing right now. Maybe something different. And not everybody has as much interest in birth as I do. I get that. I I have no problem with people planning births with epidurals in hospitals, planning cesareans, all that. Um, people have their own journey and it, I trust that they have very good reasons for making them decisions that they do, even if that's not my specialty. My specialty is people that have this particular set of goals. But um, but that I, I learned, I try to be mindful all the time of sometimes that's not realistic for everyone and that doesn't have to be everyone's set of goals. So I do, I know um, often by the things that I do focus on, portray birth and home birth particularly as something very special, um, but not to disparage anybody else's birthing choices. Those are everybody gets what they want and need out of their experiences. And that's theirs to decide what, what challenges they wish to take on in their lives. Um, so I like to do a lot of opinion, second opinions with people. So sometimes someone would be told, oh, you need to be induced and they would like to have a second opinion. And so I can tell them, I'm, I'm a home birth midwife. I can give you a second opinion from my perspective. I might give you a little different prognosis or evaluate the importance of all these factors a little differently than what your care provider did. But if you just want a second opinion, I'm happy to give you that. And um, so I like being consulted about that. And I often recommend for people who are looking 
or they're exploring their options, talk to the home birth midwives in your community as well as the hospital-based midwives, just because it just gives you a little bit different perspective on things. I say, you know, ask the home birth midwives where are the good hospitals to give birth, um, because we usually know. <laughs> And that, that's a really important resource to value. It does, I tell people I am a, not just a, no, a low pressure salesperson, I'm a no pressure salesperson. This is not my goal to convince somebody that they should have a birth like the way that I um, do birth, but just to know your options. And then you can be selective about how you set yourself up for success for the goals that you have. Um, the other one thing that I learned in a business it was like a business club um, that I joined for a little bit less than a year. And we were taught how to do elevator speeches, you know, the, the 30 second description of what we do. And um, one of the things I always left people with, most of the people in the group that I was in were bankers and lenders and more um, realtors and insurance people and not very knowledgeable or interested in midwifery. So my ask of them was to try to use the word midwife in a sentence every day, every week at minimum, but every day. That was the one thing that they could do. They couldn't often give, feel like they could give me referrals, but, um, but I liked that request because normally when people use the word midwife in a sentence, I give them a few suggestions, like here's a sentence you could use. I know a midwife <laughs> or, but also to use the word in other types of um, uses, like the verb midwife, we're midwifing a project here. We're, we're trying to make all the things optimal for the conditions to succeed this, this type of project or ambition or whatever that is, because it, it highlights less of, or it, it creates a more positive image, just the language that we use, words are so important. And I always have recognized that. So that was one thing that I asked of people, try to use the word midwife in a sentence um, as their exchange of, <laughs> here's what you can do for me. <laughs> I like that, that's brilliant, yes. It's been so wonderful speaking with you, Angie. You are so wise. You are that wise woman midwife. Oh, and thank you. Yes. <laughs> I have been blessed this hour with some, some mic drop wisdom here. And I'm excited to see where else in midwifery we're going to go, what we're going to do, and excited to have you on the team at Midwife RX and know that West Virginia is taken care of. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for providing that opportunity with your uh, entrepreneurialism on that. It was so timely to have had some telehealth experience before the pandemic hit. That was, I, I couldn't believe how fortuitous that was. So yeah. way to go. <laughs> yeah, well, couldn't have predicted that. Uh <laughs> But um, I want to thank you again. I hope you have a great day. All right. And thank you, too.